All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Uh, This is Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots for our first edition of Masari's Unqualified Opinions for the new decade. Uh, And I'm excited to have Steve Kukinas, who is the uh, CEO at Algorand up in Boston, um, we realized too late that he's actually going to be in town in just a couple of hours, but we're still doing this remotely because uh, <laughs> uh, such, such, such is life. Um, but you should notice new and improved equipment and sound quality. These things coming out of my ears uh, should make it a little bit easier to hear uh, without much of a din uh, and, and uh, certainly be a, a marked improvement from the 2019 version of Unqualified Opinion. So um, we got a lot that we're going to dive into, uh, of course. But um, for starters, uh, Steve, you know, I, I always like to dig into the origin story of the people that we're speaking with um, before we get too deep into the weeds of, of Algorand and, and you know, sure. plans for 2020. Um, how did you fall down the rabbit hole and, and get you know, sucked in with, with this crew? Um, yeah. And by the way, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. So in terms of, uh, in terms of crypto, uh, I... Um, I sort of had uh, an interesting intro to it, which is uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur by uh, by trade, and I was giving a, a fundraising talk um, at a VC's event um, in Boston uh, a couple of years ago. So I think this is uh, sort of late 16, and you know it was all sort of normal stuff. Um, but a guy in the corner sort of spoke up at the end and said, "Well, I have sort of a slightly different problem about raising money. I've." issued this cryptocurrency and I have a blockchain that we've created and applications around it. And, you know, we're thinking we'll just sell some tokens to fund our business. And I was sort of like, whoa, that's, that's interesting. And had been sort of introduced to Bitcoin um, over the kind of the few years before uh, I had some friends who were uh, doing mining and, and uh, really passionate about it. I just never really had a lot of time. Um, but I, I kind of sort of my eyes opened at the idea that, you know, it could represent a different way of, of you know, funding and, and kind of thinking about um, how businesses evolve. And from there, uh, really dove in, um, was doing work with uh, Pillar, which is uh, a Boston-based VC. That's one of Valgrand's investors and also Union Square Ventures. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, was introduced to several folks in the community. Uh, did some sort of hobbyist mining with my kids and just in the basement of my house, just to sort of learn about different parts of the tech. Um, but, you know, I think what really struck me was, um, it, you know, I started my first business in the mid-90s, in the early days of the internet. And that was a very dynamic time, had a lot of sort of libertarian uh, underpinnings, uh, was very anti-commercial and really about decentralization and tech, ironically, which I I know it doesn't necessarily seem that way now, um, but was also just a very vibrant community uh, where a lot of people were really fascinated by the tech and the philosophical underpinnings of what what could happen. Uh, And it was the first time I had seen anything in the 20 years since that really had some of the same feel to it. Uh, And so, you know, more and more as I dug in, just found the space to be fascinating. Uh, And there's so many different elements to it. So it's, it's been, uh, it's been an adventure for sure. 
how um, how did you get excited about the Algorand project in particular? Because uh, one of the you know common themes that I think we're going to hear you know quite a bit about this year is um, uh, quote unquote ETH killers or like new and improved versions of X blockchain, uh, and and usually it's around optimizing. Uh, for a new feature or or a new use case uh, where where some of these teams are trying to develop a wedge and and you know make sure that they're able to to penetrate the market and uh, siphon off some of the developer interest, the ecosystem interest from from different existing blockchains. Um, that's a tough sell, right? But but how do you see Algorand positioned as as unique in this regard and and, and kind of what's the path to success or or moving up the ranks if that's the goal? Yeah. So what I'll, uh, let me kind of hit the first one, uh, first part first. And then I think sort of this discussion about how the sort of the crypto space needs to evolve, I think is a, a, a really important, um, important area. Uh, I was introduced to Silvio um, through Pillar and, and Union Square. Uh, and what really fascinated me about him was that, you know, one of the observations I had about the space is that a lot of the tech is derivative of tech that came before it. Um, but what it really felt like was there needed to be a big step, like a big leap. Um, and, you know, I think using the internet analogy again, um, you know, the blockchain space felt like, you know, in the internet when people were still using dial-up modems and, you know, there needed to be kind of, um, you know, bigger highways built and, and better better sort of fundamental tech. Um, and what uh, I really found was that Silvio had, along with, you know, really a group of researchers here, um, reimagined the tech from the ground up. And to me, that felt uh, like it could, if you, you know, if you kind of fast forward a couple of decades, uh, you know, could have the same impact of, of something like uh, Google. You know, I, I think, um, you know, really, there's kind of an inflection point, I think, in the market that sort of leads to, to what you were suggesting about Ethereum. Um, I, over here, we're not um, necessarily all that worried about um, being an Ethereum killer. I, I think the space has room for multiple players, I think also our point of view is that there's going to be multiple chains um, that ultimately kind of focus on different areas. Um, one of the things that we are very focused on, though, is if you look at the developer community, um, there's about 20 million developers in the world. Less than 100,000 of them are building on are building blockchain applications every day, uh, and the other 19.9 million uh, are the more likely place, just statistically, where the killer apps are going to come from. And so, really making it simple for for those people to engage, we think is is incredibly important and so I think if you look at kind of the way we've focused our, our energy it's one really solving kind of the hard fundamental computer science problems and building a platform um, that can be used at scale and that has just sort of good underlying fundamental properties um, for people who are issuing financial assets and transacting with each other and in, in any way um, but then the second part is making it really simple um, for people to you know just get their work done um, an example of that is, um, you know, as part of Algorand 2.0, we released uh, Teal, which is a layer one smart contract language. And there's a lot of interesting possibilities there. But what I think is uh, exa an example of something that's even more interesting is um, we have a, a Python um, uh, Python uh, interface so that anybody who writes a Python script can automatically um, compile it into a Teal script without having to ever learn anything about our smart contract language. I think that's where we need to get is really take some inspiration from places like Stripe and make it really easy for people to add decentralized elements and blockchain elements to their applications um, without needing to learn all the underlying um, technical details of, of what goes on behind the scenes. 
How important do you think it is? So, you know, that makes sense if you're uh, trying to attract real world uh, developers and use cases, you know, i.e. not folks that are already coming at this from like a blockchain background. Um, but is the, uh, there, there's always a question of, of whether there's an infrastructure head start um, or a network head start that is uh, insurmountable just because so many other tools and companies and, and, and uh, you know, features have, have been added modularly to something like Ethereum, right? So you talk about Teal as a, um, uh, I guess, as a, a substitute for, for ERC-20 tokens, right? What, what, what is uh, particularly enticing about uh, doing a security token like the World Chess um, uh, project is, is doing on Algorand versus through an ERC-20 or, or something on like Binance chain because that's married at least to like the most liquid exchange. Um, the, the, I'm trying to figure out what the selling process is and, and, and really, you know, how you get people excited to onboard to, um, uh, to Algorand, particularly in the first, you know, half dozen or so test cases. Sure. Um, well, I think there's a few different things. Um, one, definitely simplicity is a focus. And also, you know, that boils down into kind of all of our developer documentation. Um, separately, though, uh, if you look at what Algorand 2.0 represents, Teal is one part, um, but it's really uh, three parts. Uh, and all of them are done in layer one, which I think is an important distinction. Uh, you know, so there's one, there's scalability and finality, which we find as people have assets that are of increasing value um, really matter to them. You need to know who owns what. Uh, you need those things to transact quickly. And if you look at the, the three big features that we rolled out as part of um, Algorand 2.0, one is our ASAs, which are standard assets. That's our um, uh, sort of token creation, asset creation um, uh, function. And uh, having that in layer one means that any asset created in Algorand um, basically takes on all of the properties of the underlying chain itself. So scalability, speed, finality, uh, and it does that in a way that's safe and secure. I think one of the problems that has sort of crept in but is overlooked a bit in kind of the Turing Complete Smart Contract realm is that flexibility um, is nice because people can do a lot of things. It also carries uh, side effects with it in that um, there's a lot of security problems. We've seen a lot of bugs in smart contracts lead to loss or theft of money. Uh, and by doing it in layer one, uh, you can avoid a lot of the potential pitfalls that, that come up there. So I think that's um, one around asset uh, issuance. Um, the second is, you know, what do people want to do with assets ultimately? They want to exchange them. Uh, and we think being able to do that atomically is a big problem. So atomic swaps of any type of asset for any other type of asset, whether one person at a time or multiple people contributing multiple kinds of assets, being able to do that in one transaction and have that be also a fundamental kind of uh, part of the protocol in layer one is important uh, because we hear from people all over um, the market and especially these are people more entrenched in the blockchain space that this like, problem of like who goes first when you're contributing an asset is a big problem um, throughout especially the crypto finance world as people are developing um, new applications and so solving that kind of in one shot was uh, we thought something that just needed to be done fundamentally and then the third thing is well you have assets you have ass you have um, people that want to exchange them uh, what conditions do you set uh, to do that and how do you set those conditions in, in a way um, that's also safe and, and keeps them, uh, you know, keeps it from being potentially problematic from a security standpoint uh, and also does all of that at the same velocity and scale uh, that the entire network runs at. And so I think when we dig into that with people, what we, what we hear are 
um, a lot of concerns around other platforms where potentially things like transaction fees are sort of uncertain and very variable, uh, especially due to congestion. Um, the other is just the ability to transact quickly with immediate finality and know that they'll be able to do that as their own application scales and businesses grow is of increasing importance. And I think what we found is that, you know, even though there are vibrant communities around um, other platforms, there are also people that for sure have applications of scale and are starting to grow their businesses and uh, just don't have a tractable way of continuing to grow that on, on some of the platforms um, that exist that are sort of version one. Um, things and so I think what we've found is is that um, definitely there's some people that feel that more acutely than others I think the ones that do um, We've had a, a large number of self-select um, To kind of start participating in the algorithm community and I think that's sort of led to a, a virtuous cycle of, of feedback and um, Helped inform some of the uh, the features that have, have been rolled out, but you know, we've seen um, even just in the couple of weeks uh, since uh, you know algorithm 2.0 was launched, you know, there's over 200 assets that people are working on in, uh, on our test network. So I think we're seeing, you know, interest out there uh, for kind of a different approach to the tech than has been done before. Let's talk about the tech a little bit. Uh, and this is always a little bit dangerous uh, because sure. there's so many lofty claims. <laughs> every every uh, team that I have spoken with in the last two years is building some type of smart contract platform has a high throughput, uh, more secure, uh, more developer-friendly, you know, uh, version of, of the, the the contract language itself, um, and your team certainly has a credibility to to back some of that up. So, so can separate from the pack at least in terms of you know uh, background uh, in academia and and just in in tech in generally. Um, but let's try to go through the the, the very basics of of how. Algorand is, is different structurally and, and, and how it can achieve uh, some of these speeds. And, and um, at least in theory, we'll see how battle tested it is, but, but certainly in sure. theory and, and early on in practice, um, what's made the security model work and, and how does everything work under the hood? People are very familiar with you know, Bitcoin's proof of work. They're getting familiar with proof of stake systems, um, but, but you certainly have a, a unique distribution um, schedule and 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 uh, method uh, versus you know most most other proof of stake systems. Yeah, um, well, a couple of things. Uh, one, I would encourage anybody who's who's um, interested uh, to go um, you know take a look on our website. Um, not only for the tech, uh, we have a terrific team here, both. Uh, in the science and research side, engineering, business, uh, I think it's a lot of uh, accomplished people here who, you know, really believe in, in the task. Um, and, you know, that really starts with Silvio. So I think just for folks who aren't um, uh, familiar, Silvio is a Turing Prize winner. He's really one of the founders of modern cryptography. And one of the things that uh, we're committed to standing for is actually delivering on the things that, that we put out there. Um, and I think if you look at the Algorand release uh, in June of this year, that was like proof point that the protocol works um, as it was designed and as the theory suggested. Algorand 2.0 was really a response um, to feedback from, from the market and bringing kind of a new set of primitives into layer one. And, you know, we'll continue to, to drive innovation and we think that's, that's important. Um, but I also do want to just point out that we are delivering on everything that we say. We deliver on regular schedules. And uh, I think that's something that the community needs more of. And, you know, we're happy to, you know, not only kind of, uh, be leaders there, but also collaborate with other people that are, are bringing interesting tech in. Um, 
give a little bit of the, the origin story and then I'll, I'll jump into kind of how Algorand works. Um, Silvio and a team of researchers uh, from MIT and other places um, that are all very well known in um, not only the fields of cryptography, but mathematics, theoretical computer science, um, and others felt that Bitcoin and then Ethereum were incredibly innovative and interesting. Um, but also technically flawed in ways that would make it um, very difficult or impossible for them to be adopted by the whole world if um, this is the way that people were going to, to transact with each other going forward. And um, the reason that throughput is sort of difficult is that distributed computer systems and computer, the computer science around it um, is very complicated. And the more decentralized something is, generally the slower it becomes because there's all these conflicts that need to be resolved. Um, conversely, you can make things very fast, um, but they're generally gonna be centralized. And so those, the, that's sort of um, what led to the blockchain trilemma um, that Vitalik posed a, a while back. And you know, what Silvio felt was by rethinking the fundamental computer science uh, that you could find a way uh, to eliminate these drawbacks. And so what, what Algorand, um, you know, and the result of that research became Algorand. And um, so that was published as an academic paper um, several years ago. Um, Silvio got a lot of uh, interest as a result of it. Um, then following that, there was sort of debate as to whether Algorand could actually be implemented or it was just theory that was too complicated um, to actually work. And so a group of people at CSAIL at MIT, the computer science department, um, decided that you know they would just do it and show people that it could be done. Um, uh, that ended up happening. They submitted their their findings um, uh, as a paper to the ACM and presented on it uh, and did some scalability testing. So that's what ultimately led to, to Algorand kind of spinning out as, as a business. Um, in terms of like the, the tech, I think the very simple way of thinking about it is um, Bitcoin or other proof of work style systems, uh, the miners control the network and secure the network and um, you know, the more miners you have, the more security you have. And I think that's ultimately what, what helps um, drive, especially Bitcoin, which you know, has the most mining power of, of any network. Um, the second uh, sort of wave was proof of stake, but tended to be, I'd say the most popular was delegated proof of stake, um, where you, know, you have platforms that have effectively um, a, a set of people who are chosen to be the validators. Um, that's true in platforms like yeah, EOS and others. I think they've proven that that, that works well, although um, it's not you know, particularly decentralized because those people get selected via, via some process. Um, so Algorand is, from a proof of stake standpoint, the first public permissionless um, platform. Anybody can join, anybody can participate in the network, um, and that's what we think very important. And I think that sort of fundamental basis that was established by Bitcoin is um, you know, necessary. Um, we believe uh, very strongly that a uh, decentralized source of truth needs to be public and permissionless, and that other applications can spawn from it, but if you don't have um, that strength, then, then you don't have uh, you know, kind of the, the right underpinnings um, for a network. Um, the way Algorand works that's sort of fundamentally different from other platforms is it uses a, a novel form of uh, cryptographic sortition, so i.e. a lottery, and um, that is, forms the basis for a new Byzantine agreement, which is kind of a, a like long-held problem on, on solving uh, problems in, in distributed systems. Um, what Algorand does, the, and the problem with existing Byzantine agreements or the prior ones, which hadn't really been tackled in a couple of decades, um, is that uh, if the leader becomes malicious, i.e. the person proposing a block, it's very hard to change to a new leader um, and effectively shuts down the protocol for a long period of time. And so what Silvio and the team here designed was a new form of Byzantine agreement um, where the leader changes every block. 
and so that it really kind of wipes out a whole series of uh, attack vectors that the people can take on the system. Um, but to make it really simple for anybody that's, uh, that's listening, the way Algorand works is that every single person who's online um, participates, can participate in the network. For the people who are online, um, every block, one person is selected at random to be the block proposer, and about a thousand people are selected at random to be the block validators. Uh, and the block is then circulated uh, along with the votes. Now, uh, those people do not communicate with each other, so nobody knows who they are. Uh, the signatures, um, when a, a majority of signatures are received, um, showing that um, the block is confirmed, um, then the block is confirmed. Um, but the, the, I think, unique point about Algorand is that because those, there's no communication and the lotteries are running on people's own computer in secret, uh, you don't know who the proposer is and you don't know who the validators were until the block is already confirmed. And at that point, it's too late to attack them because for the next round, it's a whole new random group of people that are selected. And so as a result, uh, there's no computational power needed uh, to confirm the block because these lotteries are very fast. Um, the second is the speed at which um, the network runs is limited only to the speed at which the block can be propagated uh, around to the nodes that are online. And so that's resulted in just real world for us. Uh, it's about four seconds a block, a little bit over that. Um, and so, and um, we have immediate confirmation or immediate finality of every transaction um, because there's only one way to get a majority of votes in favor um, of a block. And so kind of that, uh, simple sounding thing, which is that people run their own lottery when they're online, they support the network, um, is actually quite complicated in terms of you know, the actual technology and, and engineering work that had to go in to make it work. Um, but the nice thing also about it is as more users join the network, the network becomes more secure, um, but it doesn't slow down the network because the committees re remain kind of a similar size kind of every time. So the network scales to hundreds of millions or billions of users um, will continue to kind of run um, irrespective of that and becomes more secure the more users that there are uh, online um, for, in a similar for uh, For the near and medium term though, um, what risks are there as you see staking services emerge, particularly at the big exchanges, right? So, so this is going to be, you know, I think one of the key themes for, for 2020 is, is watching um, really some of these exchanges falling over themselves to, to, to support staking, right? We've seen this with Tezos. For sure. We're certainly going to see a, 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 a massive um, influx uh, for ETH uh, for phase zero um, as, as the beacon chain gets launched. Um, so what... What does that mean? You, you use the term persons, right? But ultimately, if it's easier to stake and, and your options are either stake or get diluted down um, as, as you know, new uh, network tokens are released, then um, you, you more or less have to centralize uh, the services with you know, a few of the major liquidity providers, a few of the major staking services. But I'd argue that the, the exchanges, because they already have uh, custody solutions in house and all the liquidity. They're they're probably the natural you know centralizing forces here. Um, what does that do to the security model? Not just for you know processing transactions, but also you know thinking about um, uh, truly decentralized applications that aren't effectively just processed by a consortium of uh, of, of major exchanges. 
Sure. Uh, so I think that, you know, there will for sure be concentration points. I think you see that in the real world um, as well. And uh, but I think also you need to be mindful of, of kind of how that um, evolves over time. Um, I think one of the nice things about Algorand is that um, it's not just staking providers that um, receive rewards. Every user in the system receives rewards. And so it's true proof of stake. Um, so it's, it's not um, I think that there's a big problem in proof of stake where there's a tendency uh, to create systems where, um, you know, not everyone can participate easily. And I think keeping the bar very, very low so that any individual user can participate as easily and receive rewards uh, in the same way that, that kind of bigger providers can is important. And that's the way Algorand works. Uh, everybody who has stake um, earns rewards uh, and, and um, can participate in the network. Now, I think your your point is um, a very good one. And I mean, I think we're starting to see that uh, with um, other chains I've seen in some analysis uh, recently that, you know, large amounts of people's nodes, even when they are run by different organizations, are still ultimately hosted at Amazon uh, or a few other cloud providers. I think really uh, making sure that um, there's diversity of participants, um, geographic diversity, diversity of types of participants um, is going to be increasingly important. Uh, and, you know, I think if you look at, at uh you know, our nodes, um, we, we have uh, people running infrastructure on every continent uh, except for Antarctica uh, and, you know, doing so at a variety of different uh, different networks. And so I think it's important uh, not only to um, ensure there's diversity in terms of like the types of people running it, but I think geographic diversity is important too. Um, and I think it's a good thing for people who are building applications um, to think about, you know, should they be somebody, should they be supporting the network? Do they need a node locally in their applications? Should they have one in their country? Uh, those are the kinds of, of things that we want to see. And I think what you'll find um, emerging over time from Algorand are incentives that kind of align with, with people doing that. And that ultimately the people kind of building new applications um, need to be the ones that, that also have uh, influence over the network, um, not just the exchanges and others. And so, again, it kind of goes back to the developer point, which is our big focus is bringing kind of new entrants, new people, new geographies, new perspectives into the space, um, but making it easy for them to do that and easy to participate um, in the token economy, but also easy to participate um, in the platform itself and build applications because ultimately that's what brings balance into the, the ecosystem. I don't think it's whether arguing like one exchange or another exchange has too much influence. I think you just need to grow uh, the system so that people are, are you know, driving activity through use cases and driving demand um, and doing that wherever in the world they happen to be. And I, I think that's what will lead to kind of the right decentralized outcome, um, but also lead to the right outcome for the platform as a whole. So let's talk about the distribution design and, and you know, some of the decisions that, that you all made uh, coming to market. So th there's this um, pernicious problem for any new project that's launching that you cannot, you can't recapture the the fortunate accident of Bitcoin or even Ethereum, right? Arguably, sure. Um, because back when they launched, they were so new, no one knew that they were going to explode in value to the, to the extent they have. So you didn't have um, valuations that were bid up so aggressively. You didn't have um, the concern around whales really dominating your network if they, you know, owned the majority of the stake and then just continued to as almost a rentier uh, over a long period of time. So walk through some of the uh, design decisions for the distribution because it's it's a it's a pretty novel um, approach that you had, which has kind of lower bound support and price support for some of the early uh, backers in the form of this rebate. Um, system that you've proposed. So let's dig into that a little bit because the, the 
the economics of it get a little bit wonky, but I know the design is at least um, intended to ensure that you can do this properly and, and distribute over a, a long period of time. Yeah. So I, I, you know, few of the sort of um, goals that we had and, and definitely thinking about sort of this issue is one that, that a lot of time was, was put into. Um, and there's sort of a couple. Um, so one is making sure that there's kind of bootstrapping of the network and enough people online uh, to drive security uh, early on. And I think we um, did a good job of creating kind of a, sl a slotting system where people could come and, uh, and volunteer to run nodes um, and earn, uh, earn tokens over a period of time. The other though is, um, you know, ultimately it takes time for the network or for the, uh, for demand to grow for a network. And the algo is the fundamental token um, of the Algorand public blockchain. And so as people build, they'll need to, um, you know, they'll need to use it to kind of power their applications. Um, but also, uh, you know, we we're very conscious of the fact um, that you know, it seemed like there were a lot of people that were sort of pulling numbers out of thin air. And um, we didn't think that was really the right way to try to determine what the value of the network ought to be. It really should be the market that determines that um, and not really not be up to the project at all. And so, you know, the first idea was really to use an auction mechanism um, mm -hmm. to initially set the price and kind of create the secondary market um, for it and do that in a way um, where the project didn't really have influence over what that price was. Um, and, uh, and I think that was uh, kind of a novel concept at the time. We've seen some other people start to experiment with it. Um, the other was, you know, I think if it goes back to both on the developer side, but also on the end user side, um, our point of view is that there's uh, a need for um, people to be exposed to um, blockchain platforms and the underlying technology. Um, people, it's also a market that's clearly volatile, and uh, the people, you know, may have concerns about risk. Um, and uh, and so the idea behind the refund policy was um, to allow people to get involved to like investigate the technology, um, learn about it, um, but do so in a way that that sort of limited downside risk from a financial standpoint. Um, for them now, I think as anything in like complicated, you know, economic systems, I think there was, um, you know, definitely things that worked and things that different didn't work. And the Algorand Foundation is kind of working on the next wave of, of um, experiments that they're going to try there and uh, to continue injecting tokens um, into into the market. But the I think one of the important things there is is that if you look at um, just sort of supply and demand, um, you know, kind of matching those two things up over a longer period of time and not just kind of having a market emerge with sort of all the tokens is a, is a good, um, I think, way of doing it. Now, obviously, a platform like Bitcoin has done it by um, injecting more token rewards early on and less in the future, and then ultimately having transaction fees sort of build up and, and redistribute tokens that way. I think that's proven to be quite successful. I think here the mechanisms are a little bit different, but the sort of philosophical underpinnings um, are the same, which is you know, kind of let the market dictate um, when more tokens should be entering circulation. And I think it's really a matter of kind of finding the right mechanisms to do that. So uh, definitely, I think, um, you know, there needs to be more economic experimentation. And I think on kind of that one, we're seeing really interesting stuff in the DeFi side. I think you're starting to see now kind of associated with proof of stake platforms, um, you know, kind of uh, different, uh, you know, yield opportunities that people have been creating, different types of financial instruments. Um, and a lot of them looked sort of fundamentally different from kind of the traditional, you know, bonds, stocks, and other things that, that exist in um, a more traditional financial world. So I think we're really excited to um, kind of be a part of that. And by the way, that's, if you go back to the tech, you know, that's one of the things that we've really um, tried to do is also make it 
easy for people um, to create any type of financial instrument they want. Um, we're the only crypto project that's partnered with ISDA, which is the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. Um, mm -hmm. We're in the process of rolling out a series of templates that align with kind of the standard um, financial instruments that, that you know, they specify. And we think that being kind of an intersection point between uh, the traditional financial world and this emerging decentralized financial world um, is something that's uh, a real need out there right now. And, um, you know, the chess example that you brought up uh, a couple minutes ago, I think is, is a good one where they're um, doing an IPO in the London Stock Exchange, but also issuing a security token uh, on top of Algorand. Um, we think there's, there's going to be a lot more of that. Um, and what that enables them to do is um, open up the opportunity to invest in chess um, to their global audience, um, many of which don't have access to the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and I think while for people who live in America, uh, well, that, that's, that's, that security token is going to be issued on Algorand, but it's not actually Algo. Um, no, that's that right. It's on Algorand, but I think that's so. where we, so we think there's, there's definitely two different things going on. So I think we've been, we definitely have thought of like novel ways to sort of bring the Algo into circulation and try to have the market kind of determine, um, you know, what the value of the network ought to be. And separately, we've also tried to create the plumbing to encourage other people to come and, and do their own economic experimentation. As, as sure, yeah, I mean, and, and the latter is kind of table stakes, right? You're, you're competing for developer mindshare. Um, but I, yeah. I, I wanna uh, just double click on, on the auction schedule because, you know, right now uh, it's a hundred, I hate the term market cap, but we're stuck with it forever, I'm convinced. Um, but you're, you're more or less at around a hundred million in market cap now. Um, in terms of what's actually circulating, depending on your definition of circulating, if it's, you know, the circulating unencumbered, like truly out in the wild, you, you, you could say it's somewhere in the 450 million algo range. So that's less than 5% of the total supply that's ever going to hit the market. Um, we've seen from uh, Zcash, we've seen from uh, projects like Grin, um, many of these... Uh, tokens, proof of work, proof of stake, you know, whatever, that have massive kind of long-term uh, supply issuance uh, that is scheduled and, and, and will remain an, uh, an ongoing challenge for them to distribute. We've seen what's happened with the, um, the suppression of, of just the price of these tokens because you're, you're basically, you have to assume if, if the supply is going to increase by 60% next year, that there's going to be you know, 60 million of, of net new inflows just to kind of run in place with the price. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, how, do you, how do you rate limit that, right? I, some of it, I guess, is, is baked into the auction structure, right? But there, there is this, I would argue, a, a fundamental um, value question for most projects that are in this bootstrapping phase where it, 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 it's tough to build a really robust community uh, if they're just getting their faces blown off uh, from, from an investment standpoint. Like there's no way around it. And, and, and it's, it's probably the, the toughest uh, balancing act that I'd see uh, early teams you know, grappling with as they come to market. Uh, I think that's a fair, a fair point. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, definitely a challenge. I think a few different things, um, you know, one, uh, you know, it takes time to establish a project and kind of just understand what the demand characteristics are in the market. Um, part of that's going to be driven by use cases and just organic need for the algo. Um, you know, we expect that to grow over time. I think 
If you look out, Grand 2.0 launched like a very short period ago. We're seeing good signs that there's in a variety of applications um, getting ready to deploy, um, both from the stablecoin realm to the DeFi realm, um, and you know we're engaged with a lot of folks in the traditional financial world as well. So I think we feel excited about um, the interest level in the the platform, and I, I think you know compared to you know, like a more traditional you know let's say software platform, um, I think there's. Uh, I think, you know, I've never seen the level of inbound interest um, that I have here. And so I think that's, you know, pretty encouraging. Uh, you know, at the same time, I think if you look, um, you know, definitely economic adjustments also need to be necessary or need to be made. And I think even if you look at what central governments have done in terms of managing their monetary supply, it's not a static thing. Um, and so I think there are definitely two schools of thought. There's one which is kind of the Bitcoin style, set it and forget it. Um, we're going to have a monetary policy that sort of exists forever. And I, I think in that case, having a slightly def deflationary um, plan uh, is probably the one that's most sensible. Um, but I think there's other, uh, other ways to do it as well. Um, and I think there's guides you can look to. If you look at uh, economies like Singapore, um, they tend to manage within a, a range against a, variety, a basket of other currencies um, and have it be slightly um, with a goal of having it appreciate slightly over time. I, I think those are the kinds of lessons um, that – uh, you know, people should, should, you know, look at, and there doesn't need to be like a specific time schedule uh, for token center circulation. I think it's a matter of, of, you know, building out the network and, and having these organic demand um, characteristics uh, build over time. I, I think it's a little bit tricky right now um, because, you know, I think we're still kind of at the start line in terms of like real utility in, these platforms, uh, I think we see a lot of encouraging signs, um, but I think there were a lot of platforms that were uh, that were launched in the past that weren't necessarily seeking utility that was like substantially different than the platforms that came before them. Um, they had kind of a, a different angle or whatnot. And so I think, you know, that bigger wave when you go from the 40, 50 million people who are involved in, in blockchain today to a billion, you know, those are gigantic differences in, in demand characteristics that are going to have to exist to um, satisfy the needs of the applications that are servicing those people. So I guess the uh, one point is, you know, the killer apps haven't come yet and we haven't seen that real spike. And I, I think, you know, if you go back, if you think about like the internet days, yeah, 97, 98, 99, you know, go back and, you know, look at her. I just saw a recording from the Today Show from 20 years ago, uh, you know, where they're online saying, oh, what's this internet thing good for? How do you, why would I shop online? I, you know, I could go to the store. Um, you know, I, I think we're kind of a little bit of that. So I think one, the base case is over the next 20 years, if we see the same level of innovation in the financial world and the same kind of depth of change to the financial system, like we're not fighting over this like very small demand pool that exists today. Um, we're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, reforming how the world uh, exchanges economic value um, on like a very large scale. And like that's, you know, I think the amount of value and network value that can be created over that is staggering. So I think right now we're kind of just worried about this bootstrapping phase, but you got to like play it out a few rounds down the road before you worry about it. Now, that said, I'm not trying to sidestep your like actual question. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody agrees it. on the, every, everybody agrees on the vision, right? So it's, it's more, um, it's more, how do you go, not as, you know, you could argue zero to one was the launch of the network and the testing of, of some of these yeah. different, um, novel concepts that you, you've brought to market, but um, how do you go from from one to relevant? Maybe <laughs> so. So the platform sure. tech. Let's 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 just assume that it works. That it 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 is robust. It it gets battle tested, um, and it, it continues to kind of prove its metal. 
Uh, the question, and this kind of dovetails maybe to the last point that we talked about is, is, you know, where do you have to strategically be focused in 2020, 2021, knowing that, yes, maybe someday there will be, you know, e-commerce at massive scale for everything. But the challenge that every crypto platform, I think, is, is grappling with right now is what's the equivalent of the Amazon bookstore? Right yep. before you get into the everything store, what's the bookstore? And and so you know maybe we'll we'll end on kind of thoughts on 2020 and and, and what the what markets you're most excited about um, that are being developed uh, around Algo right now. Um, sure, actually, I'm going to answer that question in a second, but I wanted to just circle back on one other point. I think okay. that the token supply issue is like a real one um, and one in the market. I think um, there's been interesting developments in the Algorand ecosystem that I'd, I'd encourage anybody to go check out. One, uh, not least of which is um, the group of people running Algorand nodes um, voted amongst themselves uh, to extend their distribution schedule. Um, out in several years into the future. Um, I think that's a like, benefit for everybody involved in, in the project. Um, you know, the second is, I think the Algorand Foundation, and they'll be sharing more about this, um, is going to be you know, reducing the number of tokens that, that are entering supply. So I think one of the things you have to do is just get out in the market, see what supply and demand looks like, um, see how these things are emerging, and, uh, and you know, make adjustments to course correct. I think it's also important that the community make those adjustments um, or, or you know, propose them and I think we're starting to see, you know, really good, um, you know, decentralized governments emerge like on the platform itself. So I, th I think those are all healthy developments um, that are really good. Now, in terms of like 2020, I think, um, you know, as I sit here today, like when I first started looking at the space at the like end of 16, early 17, um, there weren't large enterprises and traditional financial services companies and all these DeFi applications um, kind of building on the space. And I think what we're starting to see now are um, like real work that's been going on over the arc of a couple of years that's starting to emerge, whether it's um, digital sovereign currencies. I think there's, if you look at projects, even like Libra, um, you can love it or hate it, but I think the reality of that it could bring a lot of users into the space is a, a real one. Um, we're starting to see um, tokenization efforts from um, traditional financial services companies that want to expand kind of how they offer or change how they're offering products. And so I think our, our real goal for 2020 was um, to, is to continue to evolve our platform in a way that kind of really helps encourage people to come into the space and get their work done and launch these applications for real in a way that people can actually interact with them. And if you look at um, the kind of evolution that, that uh, Algorand has been going through as a platform, um, part of the reason for launching V1 wasn't just to launch the protocol, it's that the conclusion um, was that if you don't have an actual existent platform that's live and people can interact with, then you're selling a dream. And the reality is in crypto, 90% of the projects don't ever launch. And so we wanted to just show that we can deliver the, the fundamental tech in the first place. Uh, Algorand 2.0 is really about bringing the right fundamental kind of layer one um, primitives into a blockchain that's performant and can enable people to deliver large scale applications, um, do it in a way that's safe and secure, uh, that scales as fast, where payments are final, they understand where the assets are owned. Um, I will say the use cases there that we expect to see emerge first are more in the DeFi world, uh, where people have, have kind of decentralized startups, especially layer two things around identity, around security tokens, um, really not only bringing the fundamental layer one primitives, but partnering with the right platforms in layer two, so that as people come and want to build kind of business applications, that those things are there. I think the next steps are 
um, really thinking about, you know, what are the needs of the traditional financial world in terms of um, meeting their own regulatory obligations, handling things like privacy, um, how do they handle, um, you know, sort of the, the you know, different obligations they already have, um, but do that in a way that doesn't um, preclude them from participating in public networks and ultimately being an intersection point where as uh, more traditional financial services companies want to create financial products that are in the decentralized realm, um, that we help them do that in a way that that makes sense um, and takes advantage of some of these these new technologies and innovations that people have been developing. And uh, I think just like when we launched Algorand V1, we could shortly after uh, announced the, the wave of tech for V2. We just launched V2. Everyone can kind of stay tuned. We're going to have another wave of tech that we announce um, that I think is even more innovative than what we've done, done so far um, that people are going to be able to take advantage of. And so I think for sure that's one of the things that we, we will continue to bring to the market. But I think the 2020 will start to see um, definitely in, in the decentralized finance space, like real applications that people can interact with. And I think we'd feel good if we started to see um, more hybrid traditional financial um, uh, hybrid traditional decentralized financial products uh, in the line, lines of like what World Chess did um, come out in the market and <clears throat> doing the best we can to help curate more of those use cases and, and kind of bring them out in, into the world for sure. Well, best of luck with the rest of the year. Uh, certainly uh, exciting to, to have the project in the wild. It's going to be uh, uh, very uh, interesting to watch, I guess, is, is the political way to put it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you probably uh, enjoyed Gav Wood's uh, article on Coindesk, which everybody's talking about. The blockchain wars are coming, um, but you know, if, if, if the market does grow, uh, it's going to be uh, mostly off the back of, of folks who are finding early use cases versus uh, racing to zero uh, in terms of ruthless competition. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It was really great talking to you. And, um, you know, let's do it in person next time. Absolutely. Uh, everyone, thank you for joining in. I uh, hope you enjoy the first iteration of the 2020 version of Unqualified Opinions. Let us know how the sound quality was and the visuals. Can't change this, but uh, can can at least uh, give you a clearer picture. Maybe, maybe you're not asking for that. Um, but uh, until next time, peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.